Gresham College presents A New Consensus, 1990-2001 by Professor Vernon Bogdanor, CBE. So this lecture is on the 1990s, the post-Thatcher period. And uh, the 1990s are characterised, I think, by a return of some degree of consensus based on the things Margaret Thatcher had done, many of which the Labour opposition uh, under Tony Blair came to accept. And in the 1990s, it seemed that the old battles had been fought out to exhaustion. Now, at the beginning of the decade, Margaret Thatcher, who'd held office since 1979, a longer continuous period than anyone since the Napoleonic Wars, she, as I mentioned last time, was dethroned and to be, was replaced by John Major in November 1990, and he rather unexpectedly won the general election of 1992, but lost to Blair in 1997, and Blair was Prime Minister at the end of the millennium. And John Major's period of office was characterised by consolidation rather than radical reform, and the Conservatives became once again a party of cautious and piecemeal change, as they'd been, I think, before Margaret Thatcher. Because it seemed the main enemies that Margaret Thatcher had found, had slain, if you like, over-powerful trade unions, public sector too large, local authorities spending too much, these enemies had been slain. So those problems, if you like, the problems of the 1970s, uh, some of you may have been watching the series on television of the 1970s, those problems seem to have been solved. But there were new problems that arose, in a sense, as a result of the very success, to the extent it was successful, of Margaret Thatcher's period in office. Namely, that the individualistic economy which he set up, the market economy, was somehow seen as a threat to social cohesion. And people felt in the 1990s they needed perhaps a stronger uh, unifying thread of community and cohesion within which these new market reforms could work. So that whereas I think in the 1980s economic issues were crucial, in the 1990s the focus moved to the question of society, how to hold society together. It's a question I think we haven't yet resolved. Now, uh, Labour in opposition was coming perforce to accept Margaret Thatcher's reforms, and the transformation of the Labour Party reached its height, I think, in 1995, when Tony Blair, the new leader, rejected or got, secured the abolition of Clause 4 of the Labour Party's constitution established in 1918, committing the party to wholesale nationalisation. And 1997 was the first election since the Labour Party was formed in which nationalisation was not an issue. Uh, no one was asking what industries the Labour Party would nationalise if it won power. Indeed, they were asking what industries the Labour Party would privatise if they won power, which is a sign of the success of Thatcherism. Now, the Conservatives also uh, tacitly abandoned um, Margaret Thatcher's thesis of permanent change, endless activity. So that there was a, a moving, a new consensus on that basis, a broad consensus on the role of the state and on taxation. Um, and old-style socialism, the socialism of people like Clement Attlee, even Harold Wilson seemed to be dead, a kind of ideological casualty of the 20th century. Many of the main differences were rather within the parties, I think, than between them. Uh, for example, uh, between old Labour and new Labour in, in, in the Labour Party, uh, 
Perhaps the division has not yet been resolved. But of course, there were many people in the Labour Party <coughs> excuse me, who didn't like uh, Blair's reforms. And then in the Conservative Party, between the Thatcherites, who were very powerful, and um, strengthened by the sense of guilt which many felt at having removed Margaret Thatcher, and the Thatcherites wanted a much more radical approach than John Major was prepared to countenance. They wanted a more radical Eurosceptic approach towards Europe and more radical market reforms. And their representative under the Major government was John Redwood, who stood for the leadership against Major in 1995. Now, had he won, had he defeated Major, I think we'd have seen much greater changes than we saw when, two years later, Blair took over from Major, because Redwood would have uh, taken a much stronger Eurosceptic attitude and there would have been stronger attempts to introduce the market into the public services. That would have been much more radical, I, I think, than we actually had. But um, the, uh, I think the split in the Conservatives was much more serious than the divisions in the Labour Party, because the Labour Party were determined, and they realised they could only get back to power if they showed themselves a bit more unified than they had in the past. Now, uh, with the consensus on economic matters, there was a new source of division in the 90s, a new source of division on um, a topic which had not been contentious, I think, since before the First World War, and that is the Constitution. And the parties differed much more on that in some ways than on basic social philosophies. And the Labour Party came out in favour of devolution to Scotland and Wales, um, a Human Rights Act, a directly elected Mayor of London, reform of the House of Lords, and they were also willing to look at alternative electoral systems, though they didn't commit themselves to the Liberal Democrats' favourite nostrum of proportional representation. And in the 1992 election, that was a key issue, and the Conservatives argued that all this would threaten the stability of the country, uh, particularly devolution, which they said would break up the country. It may be proved correct, we don't know. Uh, John Major said in 1992, the UK is in danger. Wake up, my fellow countrymen, wake up before it is too late. Now, the Conservatives got back in 1992, but in 1997, when the Labour Party got in, we saw really the most radical constitutional programme since the Great Reform Act of 1832, a huge raft of reforms, and um, we now see possibly one of the consequences, the SNP victory in, in the devolved parliament in Edinburgh, which means that I think the development of the United, the, the continuation of the United Kingdom, which everyone took for granted in the 20th century, there's now some sort of question mark over whether it will survive. Now, um, in his memoirs, uh, John Major said about the end of Margaret Thatcher's reign, it was the poll tax which sowed the seeds of her destruction, uh, the attempt to reform uh, local council finance, um, which meant that everybody would pay a fixed charge for local government services. It wouldn't be based as it had been before, and is now, before it would be on the rates, now on the council tax, in which how much you pay depends on the value of the property in which you live. This would be a fixed charge of the sort you pay for electricity or gas uh, for council services, and everyone would pay it. Uh, the only people excluded would be uh, students, uh, people who, were, who weren't in work and so on, but everyone else would pay it. So one of the criticisms of it was that the Duke would pay the same as the Dustman. It was socially unfair. Um, but that, I think, wasn't the cause of the revolt against it, the, the revolt against it was really on a much cruder basis in a way that the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson, who was against the reform, 
perhaps rather spitefully, wouldn't give enough money to finance the introduction of the poll tax, so it had to be set at a very high level to begin with. The idea of the reformers was to set it at a low level to begin with, to, to smooth it in, as it were, and then perhaps you might have to raise it later. But that didn't happen. It was put at a high level. And um, some people did benefit from it. I mean, I remember quite well, I was one of those who benefited from it. But as uh, generally happens, the people who benefit don't say thank you, but the people who suffer squealed, and they squealed very loudly, and there were riotous demonstrations against it, and it made the Conservative Party unpopular. But um, perhaps a deeper reason was that Margaret Thatcher had simply been there too long. She'd outstayed her welcome, and uh, people were finding her remote and unresponsive. And the issue came to a head on the matter of Europe, where uh, Margaret Thatcher seemed to be undermining her foreign secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe, in negotiations in Europe. And Geoffrey Howe resigned from the government, saying that um, Margaret Thatcher's attitude was like sending your opening batsmen to the crease only for them to find the moment the first balls are bowled that their bats have been broken before the game by the team captain. <laughs> and he ended a, a most powerful speech. I mean, it surprised many people who thought him as rather um, a sort of emollient and modest person. But he ended his speech by saying, the time has come for others to consider their own response to the tragic conflict of loyalties with which I have myself wrestled for perhaps too long. And that was an open invitation to Michael Heseltine to stand against Margaret Thatcher. Now, Michael Heseltine had resigned from Margaret Thatcher's government in 1986, uh, primarily, again, on her high-handed manner to the Cabinet and her attitude to Europe. And he was, in, in some ways, um, he related to an earlier Conservative tradition because he believed in much more intervention in industrial affairs than Margaret Thatcher. He was much more like Edward Heath, perhaps, than Margaret Thatcher, but he made the promise, which won over a lot of Conservative MPs, that he would abolish the poll tax if he was elected. Now, um, Margaret Thatcher failed by just four votes to secure a sufficient majority. She, she won the, the vote, but not by enough, according to the rules of the Conservative Party, where you needed 15% more than your challenger. And she failed by just four votes. And instead of fighting a second ballot, she stood down. Now, on the second ballot... Michael Heseltine again stood, but he was defeated by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, John Major. Uh, he was just 47 years old, and he was the youngest Prime Minister uh, since Lord Rosebery in 1894. Since then, there have been two younger ones, both uh, Tony Blair and David Cameron, so it's becoming a young man's uh, uh, position. But at that time, he was the youngest Prime Minister since Lord Rosebery. But um, his background was a little different from Lord Rosebery's. Um, <laughs> Lord Rosebery was a hereditary peer who'd been born in Berkeley Square, a house in Berkeley Square, had uh, great houses, and he went to Eton and Christchurch. And when he was at Christchurch, Oxford, he kept a stock of racehorses, and his tutors said that uh, he had to choose. It was affecting his work, and he either had to get rid of his racehorses or go down and he chose to go down. <laughs> um, he was a very wealthy man. In 1880, the cost for the Liberal Party of the general election was £50,000, uh, a few million pounds now, and Lord Rosebery paid for that out of his income. Now, John Major had, I think, the most unpromising beginning 
of any Prime Minister in the 20th century except for Ramsay MacDonald. Uh, he was the son of a trapeze artist in a circus who, when he retired, uh, became a manufacturer of garden equipment, said garden gnomes, and that failed and he had to move from Worcester Park in Surrey where they lived to a tenement flat in Brixton with an outside lavatory. And John Major uh, won a scholarship to grammar school but left at 16 with no qualification, just three O-levels, it then was. And he used to say about his education, never has so much been written about so little. <laughs> um, he was then turned down for a job as a bus conductor because he, he was too tall. Uh, and he was, he was therefore unemployed for a while. I mean, if this was in a Geoffrey Archer novel, you'd say it was, you wouldn't believe it. He was unemployed for a while, but then he took a job in banking. But meanwhile, he found himself um, in speaking for the young Conservatives on Saturday morning on a soapbox in Brixton, which was Labour territory. And he found he had the ability to speak and sympathetic to Conservative policies. And he became a local councillor, and then he secured um, a uh, safe constituency, having fought Brixton twice, hopelessly, uh, in 1979, uh, uh, significantly, the constituency of Huntingdon uh, in Cambridgeshire. And um, when he put in for the seat, people said, you won't get that. This is sort of old Tory colonels and, and, and the like, and they won't choose you. He said, no, no, it isn't. It's London overspill. They're people just like me. And so it turned out to be the case. But his rise to the premiership was meteoric and unexpected. He was elected to the premiership in November 1990, but he didn't enter the cabinet till 1987, just three years before that. And he held no major post until July 1989, 18 months before becoming Prime Minister, when he was in the Foreign Office. And that lasted just three months. And then in October 1989, when Nigel Lawson resigned, he was made Chancellor. Uh, and he became Prime Minister unexpectedly. And on his first morning, he said to his new party chairman, Chris Patton, I don't know if I can do this job. I wasn't really expecting it yet. And um, he was described by one of his colleagues as the kind of man one would meet in the car park of any do-it-yourself store, <laughs> loading veneered chipboard shells into his hatchback. The sort of person I would expect to see with his car parked by the pavement on a Sunday, washing the car, eating some polo mints and listening to the cricket match on the radio. So he, was, he seemed very ordinary. But two months after his um, uh, um, becoming Prime Minister, he achieved the highest opinion poll ratings since Winston Churchill in, in the war. He became very popular at the beginning, though later on uh, things got worse. Now, his uh, main uh, aim was, uh, one might put it, to humanise Thatcherism. And he says in his memoirs, What I believe in is a rough and ready decency. My politics are quiet politics. I dislike brash populism. I distrusted bitter conflict. I was at ease with the knitting up of conciliation. And he said he wanted to make changes that would genuinely produce across the whole of this country a genuine classless society. Uh, and uh, it was that slogan of the classless society which enabled him to defeat both um, Michael Heseltine and Douglas Hurd for the Conservative leadership because they rather foolishly had themselves photographed behind these large 
country houses, which didn't seem like the classless society. So John Major's ordinariness helped him there. Now, of course, the classless society is very much associated with the left, and I think it was Karl Marx's phrase, but certainly many in the Labour Party would have said they wanted to create a classless society. But John Major didn't want to do it by the Labour method of state intervention, but by extending choice, what he called the privatisation of choice, hitherto available only to the more fortunate. For example, um, John Major would say that if you were well off, you could afford to choose which school to send your children to, uh, a particular public school, and if you didn't like that school, without fuss, you could just remove your child and place him in a school you did prefer. And he wanted to extend that choice to people without great means, uh, and also, similarly, in, in the health service, to introduce the um, ethos of markets and choice into the public sector so that people who were not well off could uh, benefit from them. And that, I think, was his first um, uh, major uh, change. And uh, in the uh, Citizens' Charter of 1991, he said that the, the standards of the public sector, sorry, the standards of the private sector should be applied to the public sector there should be performance targets. So when you see in your tube station, the next train will be there in five minutes or whatever, that's John Major. Uh, there should be complaints procedures. You should be able to appeal if, you have, if you're given bad service. And you should get redress if uh, you are inconvenienced by bad service in the public sector. And there should be independent agencies to monitor performance. Now, all that was a great change from Margaret Thatcher, who tended the view, she never publicly expressed it, but she rather tended the view that anything in the public sector was somehow going to be not so good as the private sector, somehow second class, and that the only real answer was privatisation. A public service would have to exist, but they'd be a kind of residual for those who couldn't afford better. Now, John Major defended his position by saying this in his memoirs. My own life history was different from that of most of my predecessors at number 10. When I was young, my family had depended on public services. I have never forgotten, and never will, what the National Health Service meant to my parents, or the security it gave, despite all the harsh blows that life had dealt them. These personal experiences left me with little tolerance for the lofty ideas of well-cosseted politicians, the metropolitan media or Whitehall bureaucrats, who made little use of the public services in their lives and had no concept of their importance to others. They may have looked down on the public sector and despised it as second-rate, but many of them knew nothing of the people who worked there or the manifold problems they faced. And in a speech before becoming Prime Minister to the Audit Commission, he warned against, and I quote, denigration of the valuable inheritance of the public sector. Now, you can't imagine Margaret Thatcher, I think, using those words. So the aim was, adopt the best of private sector practice, competition wherever possible, through an internal market, uh, education, the beginning of what's now called the free schools movement, uh, set up schools outside local authorities, developing their own specialisms, and uh, with charters in various areas of the public services to test and evaluate performance. Now, uh, in his memoirs, John Major attacks cynics on both right and left who claimed from the comfort of privilege and the cushion of an expense account that these were trivial issues or somehow evidence that I had a chip on my shoulder. And he did secure real improvements in the public services. Uh, in 1990, over 200,000 patients 
had to wait over 12 months for an operation. In 1997, the figure was down to 15,000. Testing was introduced in all state schools and tables of overall performance introduced. And John Major's, the equivalent of free schools, grants maintained schools, were actually kept by Labour and renamed city academies, and Labour claimed to have invented them. A lot of the reforms, indeed, were criticised by Labour in opposition, but adopted by new Labour in office. And a lot of the achievements the Labour Party claims were a fair achievement, but they were begun under John Major's, much more continuity than one would think. And the public service reforms were really begun by John Major. And he says the left ought to be very grateful to him because he'd shown that the public services could be effective. And if you're on the left, you have to believe that. And he said John Major had first shown that. So that's his first achievement, I think, that begun the process of public service reform. The second uh, achievement was in Europe. Now, uh, John Major was the first Prime Minister of the post-war era. And by that I mean the first Prime Minister for whom the war was not an important memory. And Margaret Thatcher was born in 1926, so that uh, she was 19 when the war ended. She went up to university at the end of the war, and it, it, it was a living experience for her. John Major was born in 1943, so uh, he had no memory of the war, and he had none of the dislike, I suppose not too strong to say, for the Germans that previous prime ministers had had. Indeed, um, in one of his first speeches on Europe in March 1991, he said in words that were to haunt him later in Germany that Britain should be at the very heart of Europe. Again, one can't imagine Margaret Thatcher saying that. And he said <coughs> that um, he, um, in his memoirs, he says, I was a pragmatist about the European community. I was keen to rebuild shattered fences to prevent Britain from being seen forever as the odd man out to be excluded from the private consultations that so often foreshadowed new policy in Europe. And uh, it was in that spirit that he signed the Maastricht Treaty uh, at the end of 1991, and it then had to be ratified in Parliament, which was going to cause him great problems. But in the meantime, Parliament was coming to the end of its term, and there had to be a general election by spring 1992. Now, the Conservatives were not expected to win that. It would be a fourth successive victory. And no government had been returned for a fourth successive term since 1827. Now, uh, in addition, a further difficulty that Britain was in the middle of a recession, the longest since the war, which affected... Um, not, not only um, um, people in the working class, but people in the professional and managerial class in the south of England who form the backbone of the Conservative Party. And the Labour Party had, under Kinnock, Neil Kinnock, begun the process of modernisation. It had abandoned its commitment to unilateral nuclear disarmament. It had accepted European community membership. The left was marginalised. Uh, and the Labour Party took the view that um, people would support them because they would be more effective in the public services than the Conservatives. And a large number of polls indicated that people said they would be prepared to pay more in taxation to improve the public services, and in particular the National Health Service. And that is what the Labour Party was advocating. Uh, they said they would increase taxes for those on higher incomes 
to finance the public services. This, as you might expect, was distorted by the Conservatives, uh, implying everyone would be paying more taxes. But nevertheless, the um, uh, attitudes expressed in opinion polls were not expressed in the polling booths. And it appears, when you refine these questions more carefully, that people said it would be a good idea for there to be more money out of taxation for the public services. But when asked if they themselves would be prepared to pay higher taxes, uh, they said no. And um, it was rather like it's... Um, perhaps they were giving the answers the pollsters expected. Uh, when I was at primary school, I was once asked who the greatest composer was. Uh, and I said Beethoven, and I was told, no, the answer is Mozart. So uh, I always said Mozart after that, and perhaps that may be what people said to the pollsters. <laughs> but there was also, uh, I think in 1992, uh, some sort of scepticism still about whether extra money from the state would help, or whether it wouldn't go just to bureaucracies and to trade unions. And in my opinion, this is a personal judgment from experience, the Memory of the winter of discontent was still very strong. It, uh, when I talked about that a couple of lectures ago, I said it really opened up the abyss for many people. And by 1992, it was still there. And people said, well, if we vote for the Labour Party, won't we have all these strikes all over again? And I think that, in my view, that's an underestimated factor in keeping Labour in opposition. Now, Labour's main cry was, it's time for change. We need a new, fresh government. But the Conservatives say, we already got a fresh government because we replaced Margaret Thatcher with John Major in 1990. You don't need another change. Let this one um, um, work itself to fruition. And the outcome was that the Conservatives won 14 million votes, which is the largest number ever gained by any political party in any British election. Tony Blair's landslides were on much lower turnouts, so he didn't achieve 14 million votes. And the Conservatives, they had a very small overall majority of 21, but that was largely due to the electoral system. The Conservatives were 8% ahead of Labour, and that's the largest victory by any Conservatives over the Labour government, except for Margaret Thatcher's two landslides of 1983 and 87. It's a larger victory than won by Harold Macmillan in terms of percentage of vote in 59 by Edward Heath in 1970, and by Margaret Thatcher in 1979. Uh, 8% more uh, than Labour. Huge victory. And, uh, but the trouble was, with the electoral system, that, uh, which worked against the Conservatives, they had a majority of just 21. So it meant that uh, any 11 rebels could defeat the government, and on Europe there would be more than 11 rebels, a large number of Eurosceptics, influenced very much by Margaret Thatcher, the Queen over the water, so that Major's government was in trouble, despite this striking victory. And John Major was fond of saying that he had an overall majority of 21, 13 of whom were mad. And therefore, <laughs> very difficult to... Um, and um, a, a, a further problem was... Uh, a further problem was, that, uh, as a consequence of by-elections, uh, uh, from deaths and so on, uh, a majority of 21 wasn't really enough to last a full parliament. And by 1996, the majority had gone, and John Major was dependent on the Ulster Unionists through the majority. It was, in effect, a hung parliament. But the key point is this, that um, uh, the Eurosceptics had a pivotal position uh, in that parliament. 
Perhaps that's uh, one reason why David Cameron was not too sorry not to have won a small overall majority, but happier in coalition with the Liberal Democrats, because he escapes that fate. Um, in effect, um, Major relied on the Liberal Democrats, who were pro-Europe, to get Maastricht through. But uh, before um, talking about that problem, the, um, maybe a problem if you win an election, it's even more of a problem if you lose an election. Now, what was happening to the Labour Party? They were particularly worried. Uh, could they ever win an election? And their problem they came to see was that they were, because of the changing class composition of the country, they were continually trying to run upwards on a moving escalator because if the percentage of the working class was falling at each election and you won, shall we say, two-thirds of the working class vote, that was a smaller number of votes at each election. So the Labour Party faced a very serious problem. And uh, they had to uh, adapt very considerably, and they did under Blair. And I think the main impact of the fourth Conservative victory was not on the Conservatives, but on Labour. And the Labour Party in 1995, as I said, got rid of Clause 4, in the 1997 election, it said there'd be no increases in income tax at all for anyone, uh, unusual for the Labour Party. And even more, they said they would not go beyond the Conservative Party's expenditure plans for the first two years of a Labour government. And Gordon Brown, it's often forgotten now as Chancellor, was accused of excessive rigidity, and he had the nickname of Prudence in 1997 because he would not spend money. Furthermore, the Labour Party said they would accept Conservative reforms, privatisation and trade union reform. And John Major says, I think rightly in his memoirs, above all, our victory in 1992 killed socialism in Britain. It also, I must conclude, made the world safe for Tony Blair. Our win meant that between 1992 and 1997, Labour had to change, which is absolutely right. Now, John Major remained Prime Minister in 1997, and because he's sandwiched between two very long premierships, Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair, we think of it as a short interlude. And that was, I once heard towards the end of his life, I was at a seminar, and someone asked Enoch Powell what he thought of John Major, and he replied, does he exist? <laughs> but actually, um, Major was Prime Minister continuously for longer than anyone in the 20th century, apart from Margaret Thatcher, Harold Macmillan and Asquith and made a much more fundamental impact than is generally known, I think. But he faced a problem uh, which was to destroy his government uh, when he got back of Europe. Now, uh, in a sense, this was odd because Major had got a good deal um, for Britain at Maastricht in 1991 because it's only perhaps clear now how good a deal he got because he secured an opt-out from Britain joining the Euro. And Britain and Denmark were the only countries that had a legal opt-out from joining the euro. Every other country and all the new countries that entered in 2004 and afterwards are committed legally to joining the euro. And Major said, uh, perhaps a bit unwisely, uh, he said this was game, set and match to Britain. And of course, without that opt-out, the Conservatives would never have accepted the Maastricht Treaty. But this was a triumph because he got all the benefits of um, the treaty, but without the uh, disadvantage of Britain clearly of joining the euro. And he says when he returned to Parliament, he was received with acclaim, and um, he had a Roman triumph. And he made the, but he made a great tactical error 
of delaying ratification until after the election. Now, he inherited Margaret Thatcher's majority of 100. He wouldn't have had any problems getting it through before the election, but he waited till after the election when things started to go wrong. And uh, the first thing that started to go wrong was that the Danes, in a referendum, voted against Maastricht, so it had to be renegotiated, and that gave an opening for Conservative opponents of the treaty to organise. Now, um, in May 1992, just before the uh, Danish referendum, 22 Conservatives voted against the second reading of the treaty. That's more than Major's majority. But after the Danes rejected it, a hundred Conservatives signed a motion calling for a fresh start that Maastricht should be abandoned. Now, there were even further problems in the autumn of 1992 when Britain was pushed out of the exchange rate mechanism of the European monetary system. Now, the exchange rate mechanism was a preliminary to the euro in which European countries agreed to align their exchange rates together uh, without a common currency. And Margaret Thatcher, as you can imagine, was strongly against that. Uh, Her Chancellor, uh, Nigel Lawson, and her Foreign Secretary, Geoffrey Howe, were strongly for it. And they threatened to resign unless Britain joined. And in the dying days of Margaret Thatcher's premiership, in October 1990 she was persuaded, perhaps pushed, to join the exchange rate mechanism, which pegged the pound to the German mark. Now, problems then arose with that, with German reunification, and um, this led to great pressures on the pound, Uh, and in normal circumstances the pound would have been devalued, but it was like the euro to this extent, that these were pegged fixed rates that you couldn't devalue. And the crisis came to a head in so-called Black Wednesday, which the Eurosceptics were to call White Wednesday, uh, in in, in, um, September 1992, when money started um, coming out of Britain because bankers thought that the the rate had been set to the Deutschmark at too high a rate. The pound was overvalued. It's what people are now saying about Greece, but Greece can't even get out because it's a common currency. But we, we, were, we said we wouldn't get out, but we, we were pushed out, in effect. And the pound fell, and by February 1993, it wasn't 2.95 to the Deutschmark, but 2.3 to the Deutschmark. But nevertheless, that devaluation began Britain's economic recovery. Inflation started falling, and the fall in the pound helped Britain's export trade. But it's a great paradox that the economic recovery came at the same time as a fall in Tory support. Because many people suffered from this devaluation, house prices fell, many people suffered from negative equity, again, natural Conservative voters, homeowners. And above all, the Conservatives lost their reputation as a party of sound economic management. They became the party of devaluation. And they never regained their place in the polls. By June 1993, John Major, who's strength had been so high in the polls in early 1991, by June 1993, Major's standing was the lowest since the polls began. And his government was doomed. The Conservatives assumed they'd recover. These were mid-term blues, but they didn't. But even more important in some ways, it stimulated a reaction against Europe in the Conservative backbenchers. And on the third reading of the Maastricht Treaty, 
41 Conservatives, more than Major's majority, voted against it, and another five abstained, and a vote of confidence was needed to get the bill through. Uh, Major threatened he'd resign if Maastricht didn't get through. Um, Major's uh, low ratings continued, and in 1995 he tried to put an end to the criticism by resigning the Conservative leadership and challenging his opponents to stand against him. And John Redwood stood, as I mentioned earlier, on a programme of drastic lowering of taxation and a much more Eurosceptic programme disengaging from Europe. And in that vote, he won 89 votes and John Major 219. Now, um, that's not as much as um, it seems because uh, a further eight abstained and there were 12 spoiled ballots. That makes it 109 if you add that to 89. Now, if you... um, uh, count the Conservative Party as a whole, this is about a third of a parliamentary party refused to support him. If you count just backbenchers, about half the backbenchers refused to support him. About 100 people were in the government in some form or other. So um, Major said he, had he won three fewer votes, he'd have gone. He said his level was 215. He, uh, 216, sorry, 216 his level was. He got 219. And he said it was less than I had hoped for, but more than I had feared. And uh, he the, it didn't really um, prevent the criticisms of him. But as I say, his, his achievements were greater than his thought. So I've already mentioned the reform of public services. On Europe, his achievements uh, were greater than his thought because, for better or worse, he kept us in Europe. Um, if he hadn't got the Maastricht Treaty ratified, we would no longer be in the European Union. Now, some people may think that'd be a good thing, some a bad thing, but... Uh, the government's policy was to keep us in the European Union, and so that was very important for him. And he also avoided a complete split in the Tory party, which seemed on the cards, the sort of split you'd had on the Corn Laws in 1846 or tariff reform in 1903. Um, in his memoirs, um, Major quotes Harold Macmillan, who said that Balfour had been bitterly criticised for not having a view on protection and free trade. Balfour had said the important thing was to preserve the unity of the Conservative Party. He had been abused for that. But who argues now about protection and free trade? When was the last time the conventional arguments were exchanged? 1923. Whereas the preservation of great national institutions had been the right policy. Lloyd George might have been clear-cut on policy, but he destroyed the Liberal Party. And John Major said the day may come when a similar judgment is made on a single currency. So that's his defence of policies, which to his opponents were policies of fudge. And both sides on the debate, Michael Portillo on the Eurosceptic side and Kenneth Clark on the Europhile side, said John Major should have taken a clear position, either with the Eurosceptics or the Europhiles. But Major's objection to that is he'd lose one wing of the Conservative Party. The best thing to fudge the issues and hold the Conservative Party together, which uh, I think he did successfully. Then another achievement was the reduction of inflation, which when he came to power was approaching double figures in 1990, and the rate of interest was 14%. Unemployment was rising, a recession was in in place. But by 1997, inflation was negligible, and the rate of interest was just 1.6%. And economic growth was much higher than it had been. It was under 1% when Major took power in a recession, 3.5% by the time he left office. And the Nuffield study of the 1997 election says the Conservatives could legitimately claim 
that Britain was setting an example to Europe and the world as a model of prudent and sustained economic growth. And that was the basis for Labour's success. They inherited a very strong economy in 1997. But it's a great paradox that Major won a general election in a recession in 1992, but lost it in a boom when it was safe to vote Labour, and laid the economic foundations for Blair's success. Now, John Major um, had a wider aim, which I've described, to create a class of society, or as he also put it, a society at ease with itself. Uh, create a gentler society after Margaret Thatcher, in which class and social divisions were less acute, more constructive engagement in Europe, more conciliation at home. He often compared himself to Stanley Baldwin, Prime Minister of the 20s and 30s. But in a sense, he suffered, I think, the same fate as Baldwin, that in trying to conciliate everyone, he in the end conciliated no one. Uh, he was, in 1997, massively repudiated by the electorate. He was rejected in the Conservative Party by the Europhiles and the Eurosceptics alike. Both thought him wrong. He tried to conciliate. The Eurosceptics said he'd sold out too much to Europe. The Europhiles said he hadn't given enough of a lead. And on the continent, he was thought to be insufficiently European, insufficiently communautaire. In Britain, he was thought to be insufficiently Eurosceptic. And his replacement as Tory leader, William Hague, was much more a Eurosceptic than he was. So he really failed, I think, in that attempt at conciliation as Stanley Baldwin did. But, I mean, to some extent, he did, I think, create a more tolerant, easygoing environment than Margaret Thatcher had done. He didn't resolve the deep social problems uh, perhaps no one has. And it was summed up well, I think, by Tony Blair in 1995, who said, We enjoy a thousand material advantages over any previous generation, and yet we suffer a depth of insecurity and spiritual doubt they never knew. And, and Blair, of course, a strongly religious Prime Minister, when Britain was becoming a less religious society, and as his spin doctor, Alistair Campbell, famously said, we don't do God, uh, in, in, when Blair tried to introduce religion into a speech. Now, um, Blair, when he came to power in 1997, was the first Prime Minister since Ramsay MacDonald never to have been in government before. Since then, there have been two others. Um, sorry, just there been David Cameron, is the one. Sorry, one other. And uh, no member of his new government had ever held a cabinet post before. Only five had ever been junior ministers. Uh, he'd won a landslide majority in the 97 election of 179, the largest majority uh, Labour has ever won, indeed the largest majority since the war. And he championed policies that he said were policies of the third way. And what the third way was, it was distinguished from the old left, from old Labour, and the new right, which, he, which was Margaret Thatcher and John Major. And he said the basis of his socialism, uh, though he didn't use that word much, was ethical and not economic. He said it wasn't the socialism of state control, that was dead. Uh, he said it was a socialism of values, of social interdependence and community. And that, of course, didn't distinguish him too much from John Major. Um, he said we accept the market economy, but not a market society and that the state no doubt should do less, but it needs to alter behaviour uh, so that we have the community attitudes that make a market economy work effectively and fairly. 
Not too dissimilar from David Cameron's idea of a big society, perhaps. Perhaps there's a consensus on that. He said he wanted a modern notion of society where rights and responsibilities go together and responsibilities to be nurtured so that we can deal with problems like family breakdown, the underclass and social exclusion. And the Blairite view, I think, was that poverty and other social ills result much less from the economic system, as the left had previously believed, than from deep-rooted social dislocation. So whereas the old battle was on the form of ownership, do we have state control or not, this battle was on the form of public institutions, the ethos of society, self-interest or wider social obligation. I think Ed Miliband would probably agree with that. Um, but, as I say, despite the rhetoric of new labour, I think perhaps there's less change of policy after the 1997 election than at any changeover since 1951. And the election of Labour, in a sense, confirmed a new status quo. It didn't repudiate it, as the elections of 1945 had repudiated the 30s, and the election of 1979 had repudiated the earlier period. And I think Douglas Hurd, who'd been Conservative Foreign Secretary, was not unreasonable when he said, the Conservatives lost the election despite having won the argument. And uh, former Chancellor Norman Lamont said, the only thing the electorate wanted to change was the government, nothing else. <laughs> and um, it was, someone's called it a landslide for the status quo. <laughs> uh, Gordon Brown, the new Chancellor, said, in words one can't imagine any of his predecessors the war on inflation is a labour war. And that's why he was accused of excessive prudence during his first term as Chancellor. Uh, labour introduced policies which Previously, you might have thought the Conservatives would have introduced tuition fees for students in universities, privatised the London Underground. I say the question wasn't what Labour would nationalise, what it would privatise. And on Europe, despite the rhetoric, the Labour government followed similar policies to that of the Conservatives. The rhetoric was different, but uh, we gained, uh, under Blair and Brown, the advantages, as such as they were, of European membership without committing ourselves to joining the Euro. And the Labour Party didn't join the Euro. Blair was sympathetic, Brown less so. The Labour Party now says how wise they were, and I think they would probably want to erect a statue to Gordon Brown for keeping us out of the Euro, but Labour kept us out of the Euro just as the Conservatives had done, though the rhetoric was different. Now, uh, I want to conclude with a few comments about the changes in the post-war period. If you um, look for the greatest ideological casualty of the post-war period, I think it's the idea derived from the war of state planning, of active government. Championed from the Attlee government in 1945 to the Heath government in the 70s, accepted by uh, the Labour Party, not only the Labour Party, but also most Conservatives in reaction against the 1930s. The Conservatives very scarred by the unemployment of the 1930s. And it wasn't only that old-style socialism was, was dying, but the whole idea that governments could do as much as had been thought in the wartime post-war period to cure human ills. During the war, obviously everything was planned. It seemed things ran efficiently. We all worked together. And people said, well, you know, in peacetime we can do the same if we can uh, do these things. And at first it seemed we could. We nationalised industries... Uh, we set up the health service, we set up the welfare state, we set up a new educational system. At first, things seemed to go very well. But gradually, as time went on, 
people ceased to believe, right or wrong, that governments knew what was best for them. And uh, Attlee appeared to people who wanted then, as a, perhaps a kindly, rather stern headmaster, Macmillan as a well-meaning grandee, an officer who'd be looking after the men, as it were, making sure the rations were all there, and so on and so on. But as time went on, two things happened. Firstly, governments seemed to get less competent. There seemed to be more policy failures. Whereas the setting up of the health service seemed a great success, and a national insurance system and all that, things gradually became less competent. In particular, it seemed from the 1960s onwards that governments were less competent at managing the economy. Perhaps the experts didn't know best, after all. But secondly, people took for granted many of the benefits they got, and they became less deferential and less willing to believe that others knew better than them, less willing to follow uh, and do what um, Attlee or Macmillan or other leaders told them to do. And I think this reached its climax when Edward Heath, just before the February 1974 election, spoke to people and said, let's all pull together to deal with these economic problems as members of one nation. He said, let's all pull together. Now, when Churchill or Attlee said that in the 1940s, people did it. But when Heath said it, by the time in the 1970s, they, they said, no, we won't. And it's interesting that M Margaret Thatcher, of all people, said in the 1980s that um, you shouldn't overestimate what governments can do. They can't do that much in economics. It's up to people themselves. And that was the new era. Perhaps that's true of social change as well. Perhaps just as they overestimated what they could do in economics, Blair and, and, and Major and perhaps Cameron overestimate what they can do to change society. So I think that's the first change. Then, um, I think, the, uh, in place of the state, there's a much greater emphasis on the market now than there was. The market was discredited, as you may remember, in the 1930s because of mass unemployment and poor conditions, and people thought state planning could cure that. But now the pendulum swung back the other way to uh, the market. <clears throat> now, along with that, it ended the idea of that somehow those in power... Um, adhere to what you might call a public service ethic, that they're disinterested people who want the best for the community. Now that, in a sense, uh, socialism or Labour Party, very much dependent on that. And again, in the early years, it seemed reasonable. People thought that of Churchill and Attlee and the early Prime Ministers. They thought you may disagree with them, but they're genuinely public-spirited people who want to try and do their best for the community. Now we're much more cynical and critical of politicians. We think they're all a parcel of rogues and you can't trust any of them. And uh, that actually says, therefore, if you can't trust them, why should we give them more powers? Why should we give the state more powers? Because after all, the state is that collection of politicians. But if they're all so awful, uh, very dangerous to give them more powers. So we trammel them around with human rights acts and devolution and, and, and all the rest of it. And one, one saw that in a very interesting way, I think, in the recent local election, where people voted against directly elected mayors in most of all the referendums but one. In other words, people say... We may not like our local authorities, but it would be just as bad if you had uh, another type of politician called an elected mayor running things, so we don't want that either. Which don't want us, we, we want much less of politicians than we did, put it crudely. Then uh, a further great change, is the, uh, fundamental I think, is the, the end of what some people call corporatism, and perhaps more precisely the role of the trade unions in government which again was something endorsed by the war, and in particular by Ernest Bevin, who was Minister for Labour and National Service. And during the early years of the war, after the war, the trade unions were brought into government, not just by the Labour Party, but by Conservatives as well, and they'd be brought in for consultation. 
And gradually that consultation came into a trade union veto, that you couldn't do anything if the trade unions didn't want it. Um, so Britain had become a kind of blocked society by the 1970s, that uh, any radical reforms you wished to achieve, the trade unions said no, and if you didn't like that, they would go on strike, and so you better not provoke them. So that was another major change. And then um, the uh, idea of superiority of our political system, I think, has also uh, taken a bit of a battering. That After the war, there was no doubt that, after all, our democratic system had beaten Hitler. The Westminster model was the best and uh, exported to Africa and Asia. Uh, continental countries had different systems, so much the worse for them. They were second-class countries. We were the best, and Britain was the centre of the world, ahead of a great empire, a commonwealth, and um, everybody should adopt the Westminster model. Well, now, with the whole raft of constitutional reforms, shows that's no longer true. I mean, if you think you've got a marvellous house, you don't keep mending it and, 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 and altering the buildings and, and reforming it and so on. Anyone who keeps reforming something shows it wasn't that good in the first place, and uh, that is now a key issue, which anyone who suggested constitutional reform in the 1940s is completely out of the debate. Now, the, uh, um, from the time of Margaret Thatcher, the whole um, block society came to be opened up. Now, Margaret Thatcher weakened the trade unions, restored flexible labour markets, and opened up the economic system so that more people own houses and more people own shares. Uh, after the war, about 30% of people were owner-occupiers. Now the figure is nearly 70%, a major radical social change, a property-owning democracy. And more people now own shares and belong to trade unions. That's another major and radical social change. John Major, as I described, opened up the public services to make them more accountable. So now we're no longer just prepared to accept what we're given. And uh, if, if there's rotten service, we complain, we can appeal. And uh, to some extent, there's some degree of competition. It's not as easy, perhaps, as it might be. But if you don't like the school at which your child attends, there's a chance of moving, and particularly with the free schools and city academies, a chance of choosing uh, within limits school, and to some extent in the health service as well. Uh, Blair opened up the political system, the use of the referendum, now being suggested again, another referendum for Europe, uh, the devolution, elected mayor of London, and so on, new changes. And broadly speaking, people no longer see themselves, as they did in the 1940s, as passive clients of the state, prepared to accept what they're offered, and they want choice in public services. So the block society has been undermined by changes, firstly, in the social structure, class system, uh, much greater social mobility, affluence, home ownership, and so on. And it's a more fluid society, and I think that um, people in it don't want to be dependent, don't see themselves as clients of the state or uh, subject to the power of the men and women in Whitehall. They want to make their own choices. And I think if there's one um, the key change, it's that from being a blocked society, we've become a much more fluid and individualistic society. Um, and uh, one symbol of that is that the Festival of Britain in 1951 was financed wholly from public funds. The Millennium Dome at the end of the century was financed from corporate sources and the proceeds of the new proceeds of the new national lottery. So that's a good sign of how the market um, uh, economy has uh, developed. Um, so the settlement, which lasted for so long, the settlement of Attlee after the war, has been uh, not wholly. Some of it's still there, of course, the health services, but some of it's been dismantled. It's not clear what should replace it or what will replace it. 
And we haven't been able to answer this question, which I think plagued both John Major and Tony Blair, of how competitive markets could be made compatible with stable community. Neither party seemed to have an answer to that. David Cameron's trying to find it with his big society. But perhaps the most striking difference between 1945 and 2000 is the loss of national self-confidence despite Thatcherism. Margaret Thatcher tried to restore it. In 1945, Britain was the leader, not only in democracy and constitutional matters, could teach the world lessons about democracy, but in building the welfare state. It was a new Jerusalem, the model for all social democracies elsewhere. Every country would follow the National Health Service. Every country would follow British methods of securing full employment, running the economy and so on, the mixed economy and all that. And the predictions in the early 1950s of a new Elizabethan age. Britain was to be an example to the world of the welfare state. And, so, and that was the, certainly the feeling of the Attlee government and the Churchill government, which people don't, I think, feel that anymore. People are much richer than they were, of course. They have a much wider choice. Is it a better world than the one we hoped for in the 1950s? Well, that's a question for you to answer and uh, it's, uh, uh, for you to decide. Uh, thank you very much for coming to these lectures. For all information, please visit www.gresham.ac.uk.